Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host, Shantae Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day so far. Today is Wednesday. It is W-I-N-S Day, Relationship Wednesday, and we are back talking about what happened to you. Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. And we are reading from Dr. Bruce Perry's book, along with his conversation, In Conversation with Oprah Winfrey. This has been a very helpful book, a very insightful book. Um, I have been recommending it to people, especially people who are dealing with uh, childhood trauma, the aftermath of childhood trauma. And um, it has really been helping them. It's For some people, it took them a long time to... Uh, get the book and pick it up but they are finally in and reading it and I'm excited about that we are about halfway through this book we've actually been sort of taking our time with it but as this is the start of 2023 I want to just first ask you how are you doing and are you okay and um, did you make it through the holiday season um without getting into any setbacks in your mindset, any setbacks in terms of your relationships, were you able to, over the, you know, the holiday season, repair some relationships? Were you able to get some closure in some of your relationships? Um, Were you able to establish new connections with old people in your life? Um, I noticed that a lot of people this year said, hey, I'm not going to that party this year. Um, I'm not going to that family, you know, gathering. I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to be at home reading a good book, curled up with a blanket, sipping me some, you know, coffee or hot cocoa, whatever it it was. Um, I saw a lot of people saying, you know what, this holiday season, I'm going to choose me. I'm going to choose um, my peace. And so, I did see a lot of that, but I also saw um, lots of people gathering with their immediate family. So whether you, whatever side you were on, as long as you were doing what was healthy um, and helpful for you, I applaud that. Um, As long as you stayed out of the drama and you stayed out of the fray, I applaud that. The other thing I want to talk about really quickly is building relationships um, through the avenue of social media. I will say for myself, I've had an opportunity to um, build some pretty genuine connections here through social media. And what do I mean by that? Genuine connections that I'm not just, you know, talking into a screen, but I'm also um, taking those relationships that I'm making here online And I'm doing FaceTime with people. I'm talking with people, getting to know them um, outside of this little box. And so I want to encourage people this year that when you see yourself really making a a good connection with someone through social media, you are, you know, tending to resonate with what it is that they're saying or what it is that they're sharing. Um, They're inspiring. They're encouraging. They're uplifting. See this year if you can go that extra step to say, hey, 
um, you know, can we do a Zoom meetup? Can we do a Google Meet meetup? Um, meetup? Can we do, you know, a FaceTime or something of that nature just so I can get to know you a little bit better outside of, you know, the 160 characters on Twitter or, you know, the, the reels that you post on social media. So I encourage people to this year, just think about two to three people that you want to connect with on a more um, real, uh, impactful level. Um, I think that's going to be important in terms of building relationships this year and building partnerships. I also want to encourage you, especially black content creators, those of you who are in the social media space, I want to encourage you to be yourself. There is nothing that will make me scroll past someone's content faster than me closing my eyes and all I hear is a white man talking to me. But it's not a white man. And what do I mean by that? I mean that a lot of you are masking on social media. And if you don't know what masking is, I'll put it this way. This is my normal, regular talking voice. If you meet me offline, this is how I speak. This is how I talk. I think I have a witness down here in the comments, okay? <laughs> this is how I sound outside of the box, outside of the podcast. This is my real voice. But if I began to talk to you like this and said, hey, everybody, like, oh, my God, this is a wonderful day. I hope everybody is like really doing fine. <laughs> Please stop doing that. I beg of you. This year, I want you to come into your own voice. And the best way that you can come into your own voice is to stop masking your voice with a sound that you believe is more palatable to the dominant society. Because literally, that is what I see happening. I don't see people using their regular voice. And I know it's not your regular voice because I can literally scroll through social media, close my eyes, and hear the exact same tone across different people's platforms that are black. I ain't even going to say persons of color. <laughs> so I know it's not your tone. I know you're masking what your real tone is. Some people call it their, um, their bill collection voice. <laughs> or the voice they use when they're, when they're speaking on the phone with the customer service rep. I just want you to stop masking. I want you to be yourself this year. That includes your tone and your voice and how you speak. Because everybody has their own specific voice tonation. And so when I see people who are not using their own voice tonations, that they're using tonations that they think is going to make them more palatable to the dominant society, to be honest with you, it actually turns me off of your content and what it is that you're saying, because I know that's not how you talk.
<clears throat> I'm not going to say talking white or talking black. I'm just going to say stop masking your actual voice, your actual tone to appease people on the other side of the screen. Yeah, please stop doing that this year. I want to hear what you sound like, just like I want to know what you look like. Again, filters are great. If that's part of your persona to use filters all the time, okay. But at some point, can we see you and can we hear you to this year? I want us to, to work on being our authentic self as much as possibly lies within us. Be your authentic self this year. Show up as you this year. I got an inbox. Somebody asked me, where did I get my extensions from? Because they look so real. These are not extensions. This is my hair. <laughs> and I was thinking about giving my hair a name this morning because it did not want to do what I wanted it to do. It did not want to sit down on the top of my head. <laughs> so I thought about giving my hair the name Tina or Diana, but I haven't come up with a name for my hair yet. But this is my hair. It's not an extension. I've been growing it out. I lost hair about 2019. My hair fell out from some really bad medication I had to take temporarily <clears throat> for a medical procedure. And I took that medication for two weeks and my hair was coming out in strings and clumps. And I wound up having to cut my hair in 2019 to like right above my shoulder. And it has taken me this long from 2019 to, to now to regrow my hair. I've got some things on my YouTube channel that um, helps women who are dealing with hair loss, excuse me, how to regrow your hair back naturally. <clears throat> without spending thousands and thousands of dollars on doing it. You can find that on my YouTube channel, Church Love 333, under the playlist Health and Beauty. But this is my hair. So I'm trying to model, essentially, what I'm telling other people, right? I'm trying to be who I am, um in a very authentic way. I don't come on here fancy. Again, if that's your thing, great. But I encourage you this year to work on being your authentic self. And if extensions are a part of your authentic self, how you want to present yourself, that's fine. <clears throat> but yeah, I get asked every now and then about my hair extensions, and they're not extensions. All right, so let's talk. We're back in what happened to you, conversations on trauma, resilience, and healing. 
by Dr. Bruce Perry in conversation with Oprah Winfrey. We are on the chapter from coping to healing. And they began to have this interesting conversation about daydreaming and how it is a partially disassociative state and that people use daydreaming to adapt in certain situations and that it is a very normal and adaptive capability. And Oprah asked the question, well, she stated, she said, very often we punish the child who's daydreaming. And he said, we do. But in a developmentally informed, trauma-aware school or setting, there's an understanding that downtime plays a crucial role for memory consolidation. Disassociative reflection is encouraged. So let's continue. Oprah says, yes, I'm very much aware of this principle of dissociation or disso- yeah, dissociation because of my school in South Africa. The girls there are brilliant. You've met many of them, but they come from challenged, traumatized backgrounds. And we had to train our teachers to understand that daydreaming or disassociation is actually good for them. It's an expected coping me- mechanism when you're raised in an environment where there's inescapable chaos and minimal support or other ways to keep yourself regulated. You need to be able to shut yourself down. You need to dissociate from that environment and its intensity in order to survive. Exactly. Dissociation as a coping mechanism will happen more commonly when the individual feels that a threatening situation is inescapable. If you're a child and your family has a lot of conflict, you don't have many options. You can't say, hey, I'm moving out. Very young children can't fight or flee. They have to stay. At what point does dissociation as a coping mechanism become dissociative disorder, where the child increasingly takes herself or himself into their inner world? Well, you nailed it earlier when you talked about the infant with the disengaged parent. Remember that a pattern of stress that is unpredictable, uncontrollable, and prolonged will sensitize the stress response system. And if dissociation is your preferred mode of stress adaptation for long periods of time, when you're young, you end up with a sensitized response to any challenge. The dissociative response is overactive and overly reactive. Some of the young women at Owlag, for example, after growing up in chaos and threat as young girls, would dissociate in the face of any challenge when faced with any discomfort whatsoever. I think this part of our discussion is going to be helpful to a lot of people who wonder why they tend to check out. Why can't I stay in the game when things get challenging? It's because your brain has been trained to dissociate when things become uncomfortable or feel like a threat to you. Even if a math test isn't as big a threat as someone who wants to harm you, your dissociative response may be so overly reactive that your response to the math test is to shut down. Exactly. But the response is not always a complete shutdown. As we've discussed before, 
the dissociative response to challenges and threats happens on a continuum. For individuals who tend to have a dissociative response to stress, the first stage in the continuum is avoidance. These people don't want conflict. They want to be invisible. They avoid eye contact. They don't volunteer. They stay quiet in discussions. If they can't be invisible and somebody confronts them, what do you think? They shift to compliance, but it's a hollow compliance. They, they answer what they think the other person wants to hear, but they're not engaged in the exchange. Exactly. This is one of the most challenging parts of working with children who have had developmental trauma. And it isn't just children. I have seen this behavior in adults. I remember a show we did years ago with Gary Zukov, where a woman explained that after experiencing early sexual abuse, she would, not sabotage, she would sabotage her adult relationships, whether they were happy or not, by removing herself emotionally. She dissociated even though she said she cared deeply about her partner. She'd go through the motions of being in the relationship or compliance, as you say. It was a hollow compliance. She wasn't really there. But after working with a therapist to create and maintain healthy relationships, she now actively practiced staying present. Gary Zukav validated her feelings by acknowledging that for many people, there is a terror of being alive. I will never forget that phrase. Interesting that he says that. One of the common behaviors seen with a sensitized dissociative response is cutting. And often someone who cuts will say, it makes me feel alive to see my blood. It is soothing. Can you please explain the psychology behind cutting? I think I'm not alone in not really understanding how people can be addicted to it. Cutting can be very confusing from the outside. We've talked about how your stress response systems can become overly reactive, how anyone experiencing inescapable and unavoidable trauma will dissociate, and how if the pattern of this trauma is prolonged or extreme, the dissociative systems become sensitized, overactive, and overly reactive. Remember that dissociation releases opioids, your own painkillers. If a person without a sensitized response cuts themselves, their body releases a little bit of these opioids so that they can tolerate the cut. The amount released would be pretty small and proportional to the little cut. But when someone with a sensitized or overly reactive response cuts themselves, they feel a release of a lot of opioid. It's almost like taking a little hit of heroin or morphine. Now, I do want to add to this. This is also what happens when people get addicted to tattooing and piercing because it is a form of cutting or puncturing into the body and allowing for the blood to be released. It is a form of bloodletting. And that's why people say, be careful about the whole process of tattooing because you can get addicted to it and want more and more and more because what you are sometimes doing, as he said, if you already have an overly reactive or overly sensitized stress response, you're getting this little hit of opioid when you do it. Are you saying it actually feels good? The cut doesn't feel like a cut? Yes, the opioid burst from cutting can actually feel regulating, soothing. It is rewarding for some, 
it makes them feel good. It doesn't hurt. No. In fact, it can become their preferred method of self-regulation. I never thought of it that way. So in order to feel that sense of soothing, you have to be in a dysregulated state. If you're in a regulated state, cutting would hurt, would it not? Exactly. You have to have a sensitized dissociative response. This usually comes from a history of abuse that was painful, inescapable, and unavoidable, essentially chronic chaos and threat when you were an infant or young child, or very often sexual abuse. So what's happening to you in those conditions is inescapable. Yes. And then your dissociative neurobiology becomes sensitized or overly reactive. And you discover that a reliable way to self-soothe, to ease the pain, is to cut. This is fascinating. I've wondered about this for a long time because I have girls who've come, as, and as we've said before, from difficult, challenged backgrounds. I created OWLAG to give them opportunities and the trajectory of their lives changed. And yet we had a cutting problem at the school. And each time I was told about it, I wondered how anybody even knows to cut themselves. How do they learn to do it? Did they watch someone else? What if the school didn't exist and these same girls were in their villages or townships? Would they be cutting there? Are those people, are the people in those villages also cutting? That's a really interesting question. If we start with early trauma, little children who have this sensitized response sometimes discover that when they pick at a scab or scratch a mosquito bite, wow, that feels good. They begin to learn that self-mutilating can be regulating, but this makes up a fraction of the total group of people who end up cutting. It turns out that many people learn about it from their peers. You can sometimes even track the rates of cutting when a popular TV show talks about it. Some children will experiment with cutting and say, no way, this hurts. I'm not doing that anymore. And others will say, wow, that's good. Just like drugs. A percentage of high school students will experiment with a drug, but only 18 or 20% will end up having trouble with recurrent use. And if you look at the people who go back and use again and again and again, very high percentages of them are the ones who have had developmental adversities. Among the children who don't go back, fewer have had developmental adversities. Drugs are a different form of regulation for some people who've experienced trauma. So true. There are different maladaptive forms of self-regulation, but all of them tie into the same basic neurobiology of the stress and reward system. Some children rock and bang their heads against the wall, for example. Yes, I've seen that. It has the same effect. And other children will discover that pulling out their hair or their eyebrows gives a little bit of an opioid burst, opiate burst. This is so important to understand. I did not realize how this is all tied together. Children will find a way to soothe. Making yourself throw up can also cause that opioid burst. There are eating disorders related to self-soothing, but not to body image. It's a maladaptive form of soothing. This is fascinating, but these behaviors are somewhat extreme. Are there more common coping behaviors? Absolutely. They can develop into personality characteristics that are first not easy to recognize, but may affect how people either avoid or step right into a troublesome situation or interact with challenging people. I mentioned earlier that for so 
much of my life, one of my major personality characteristics was being a people pleaser. It affected everything, my weight, my health, my businesses, my relationships. When you're a victim of abuse and you're taught and you taught to be quiet about it, you end up always wanting to please people because you've learned that speaking up will result in punishment. You don't have a concept of how to say no, Oprah says. People pleasing is a classic coping mechanism that is part of the compliant behavior seen with dissociation. But again, it's important to remember that dissociation and self-regulating behaviors that are dissociative are not all bad. The capacity to control your capabilities is very powerful. It allows people to be good at reflective cognition. It allows people to have intense focus on a specific task. Hypnosis or flow or being in the zone, all of these are examples of the trance state that dissociation allows. People who learn to control when and how they go into a trance state have a gift. I can guarantee you, Oprah, that you're really good at dissociating. It's one of your superpowers. Is it? Absolutely. Let's start with how you love reading. Oh yes, that's true. Books for me have always been a way to escape. They were my path to personal freedom. I actually learned to read at the age of three, and once I did, I quickly learned that there was a whole world beyond my grandmother's farm in Mississippi. Right, and you are clearly reflective, very much so. And you can go to places in your head and imagine things in the future in ways that a lot of people have a hard time doing. That's dissociation. It's healthy, healing, and productive. This is why people need to be careful about labeling dissociation as a pathology, as a strictly negative behavior. It can be an incredible strength. But for you at times, it sounds as if your dissociative adaptations led you to being compliant. You were trying to give people what they wanted. Yes, people pleasing. That was your default. Stay under the radar, do what's asked of you. Don't give anyone a reason to be angry. Just give people what they want. 100%. Just give people what they want. But over time, you have changed. You dosed yourself away from that overly compliant behavior. You often use the term intention. And when you say it, I think controllable. Your life is busy, full of challenges and demands. Yet you take that set of stressors and you use boundaries and intention to make the pattern of your life stress more predictable, controllable, and moderate. That is a healing and resilience building pattern of stress activation. I learned about the power of intention from Gary Zukov. It literally changed everything for me. It's the guiding force in my life. Gary taught me that an intention precedes every thought and every action and that the outcome of your experiences is determined by your intention going in. It sounds complicated, but really there's nothing I do that doesn't start with asking myself, what is my intention in doing this? Once I got that, I started to make my decisions based on what I intended, not just on what someone else wanted me to do or what I thought would please them. I had a lot of bullies in my life, but the power of intention helped me create boundaries to do only what I wanted to do because it felt authentic to me. With every decision, big or small, learning to say no has healed me and intention has saved my life. Let's take a sip right there.
listen, Oprah, you better preach today. Two things. And I, I'm going to have to agree with her 1,000% on that. Learning to say no has not only healed me, learning to say no has protected me. Learning to say no has exposed people I needed to say no to anyway because of how they reacted to a no. But I never would have found out their intention had I not told them no. So yeah, learning to say no has healed me and intention has saved my life as well. She says, but speaking of decisions and choices, I want to turn to a question that baffles so many of us. Why is it that people who are victims of trauma are so often drawn to abusive relationships? Mm. We're going to answer this and then we're going to take a stop, come to a stopping point. He says, let me broaden the question because it is so important in understanding not just abuse, but all behavior. The key point is that all of us tend to gravitate to the familiar even when the familiar is unhealthy or destructive. We are drawn to what we were raised with. Somebody say, familiar spirits. As we've said before, when we're young and our brain is beginning to make sense of our experiences, it creates our working model of the world. The brain organizes around the tone and tension of our first experiences. So if early on you have safe, nurturing care, you think that people are inherently good. And as we also talked about earlier, this worldview makes you project goodness onto the people you meet. And that projection of goodness elicits good things in return. But if as a child you've experienced chaos, threat, or trauma, your brain organizes according to a view that the world is not safe and people cannot be trusted. Think about James. He didn't feel safe when he was close to people. Intimacy made him feel threatened. Here is the confusing part. James felt most comfortable when the world was in line with his worldview. Being rejected or treated poorly validated his worldview. The most destabilizing thing for anyone is to have their core beliefs challenged. As psychologist Virginia Satir puts it, we feel better with the certainty of misery than the misery of uncertainty. <laughs> Good or bad, we are attracted to things that are familiar. So if you come from an abusive background, you might be in a relationship with someone who is abusive because it's familiar. Yes. In fact, if you get into a relationship with somebody who's not treating you poorly, you may find yourself feeling increasingly uncomfortable. I don't know how many women need to hear this part. And then unconsciously, your mind might seek a predictable response. You may try to provoke a bit of response. Maybe I'll do X and it'll tick them off. If this elicits the behavior you're most familiar with, them getting angry or treating you poorly, it can actually be validating. The worldview has been confirmed. Even though it's the result and the result is chaos and conflict, it's comforting in the sense that it's familiar, especially if your, your worldview is 
blank ain't ish. My words. So if you already feel that, that is your worldview, and you get into a relationship, you're going to keep poking and poking and prodding until that worldview of, of whether it's men, whether it's women, whether it's black men, whether it's black women, you're going to keep poking until that worldview gets validated. I think that's a good stopping place. Next Wednesday, we'll be back in from coping to healing. <laughs> We've got a few more pages, and then we're going to move into post-traumatic wisdom. Are you enjoying this read? I know I am. I hope some green lights are going off. I hope some green flags are going off. I hope some red flags are being exposed and revealed as we read through this book. I encourage you to get it. What happened to you? Conversations on trauma, resilience, and healing. Now, let's open up for some conversation. If you have been listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention. I want you to consider two things today. Consider what ways that you've been dissociating in a healthy fashion in what ways you might be dissociating in an unhealthy fashion. Consider whether or not the things that you're doing in your life are leading you to confirm a worldview that actually needs to be healed and dealt with, or if you are confirming a worldview that is a healthy one. I want to thank you again for your time and attention, and I look forward to being with you again on tomorrow. For Thinking Thursday.